gospel to you this morning as we look ahead also to Good Friday this week. So I've decided to focus our attention on a very central passage in the gospel of of Mark. And that's found in Mark 10. But in order to receive some background to what is happening in that chapter, we're going to read some of the passages that precede it in Mark 8, 9, and 10. So first we turn this morning in God's Word to Mark chapter 8, where we read the verses 27 through 35. And then we'll turn to Mark 9 and Mark 10 subsequently. Mark 8, where God's word reads in verse 27 and following. This is immediately after, pardon me. Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. We look ahead to chapter 9, where we read verse 30 through 37. Where we read, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
And then chapter 10, the verses 32 through 45. And after this reading of God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 49, stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I will drink, that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This morning I may proclaim to you the word of God as we read it from Mark 8, 9, and 10. And I ask in particular for your attention to Mark 10, verse 45, as the window into the passages we've read together. Let's read that verse once more, Mark 10, 45, where the Lord Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response hymn 23. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's amazing how sometimes it takes somebody else 
to point out to you something that's always been right in front of your nose. We have before us this morning the concept of servant leadership. It's a concept that over the last 40 years or so has generated a lot of literature and commentary by both Christian leaders as well as secular leaders in the business world. Well, since our Savior and pretty well every other New Testament author made such a tight link between Christian leaders and servanthood, you would expect to find this very subject talked about in Christian literature. And it is. But that's not how the discussion started. The discussion was really kick-started in the early 70s by a certain Robert Greenleaf, who never once claimed that his book, Servant Leadership, is a book religious in character. He mentions a number of writers and figures who inspired his thought, but he never once mentions Jesus Christ. But he gave the business world a new model when leaders view themselves as servants, they build stronger businesses and produce serving environments, and they also discover greater personal joy and contentment in their leadership roles. Well, congregation, even though Greenleaf deserves the credit for putting this concept on the radar of business leaders, it certainly didn't originate from him. It came from God, from Jesus Christ. And yet history has shown us, and for, our, for us today our lives often show, that the model that the Lord taught us is one of the most difficult for humanity believer and unbeliever alike, to follow. But to follow that model, to embody that model in our lives, is to experience then greater joy and contentment in the Lord. Sometimes it takes somebody else to point out to you what has always been right in front of your nose. Greenleaf, well, he didn't even know the true source the true model of servant leadership, and yet he could know a degree of joy and contentment. We then, as Christians, may come to have our thoughts on leadership, on being great, transformed, and thereby may know pure joy and contentment in Christ as we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow the Son of Man, our servant King. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, as you look to be great, consider the Son of Man. We'll see that he came to serve, and secondly, he came to ransom. The Lord's statement in our text, brothers and sisters, comes hot on the heels of a dispute with two of his disciples, James and John. They had these not-so-noble aspirations for positions of honor and leadership. They say in verse 37 of chapter 10, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, to put it in modern Canadian terms, they're basically saying, when you take power, we want the top places in your cabinet. 
They wanted Jesus to make it all happen for them. Do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, when we read this, of course, our reaction is that this is nothing short of outrageous. This is vanity and self-centeredness of the highest order. Well, then it's worth spending a few moments this morning to see that the gospel writer Mark is not singling out James and John as more naive or more deluded than the other disciples, and therefore more in need of the instruction of our text than the others. For Mark, this is just one more illustration of how wide the chasm was between the thinking of Christ and of his, all his disciples. So if we look a little bit this morning for a few moments through some of the readings we went through, we see that this picture already starts in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 29, we read together, that Peter makes that marvelous confession, you are the Christ. And what happens right afterward? Verse 31 Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is the first time that Christ says he must die. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now that draws out the very sharp response from the Lord Jesus, get behind me, Satan. He's saying that Peter, in other words, is letting himself be used as an instrument in the hands of Satan. And then Christ follows that up in verse 35 with a comment about leadership. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This comment is the first of its kind. By it, he's tipping off his disciples. A new order is coming in which you need to see leadership and greatness in a way radically different than what many think. So that's chapter 8. When you turn to chapter 9, the very same thing happens. Chapter 9, verse 31, he says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is the second time Christ states he must die. And the response, verse 32, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They're puzzled. And then in verses 33 and 34, we read that they were in an argument about which of them was the greatest. In response, Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He rebukes their whole way of thinking. And then chapter 10, same story for the third time. Verse 33, 
Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. These verses, verses 33 and 34, they provide the fullest statement of Christ's suffering and death. And then follows that dispute of James and John. That's, that's what then leads to the words of our text. Again, speaking of servant leadership, servant greatness. So there's a pattern. Christ is presenting servant leadership alongside of his prediction of a suffering and dying Messiah. And his followers don't get it. Peter, James, and John, the very inner core of the disciples, the ones best fitted for leadership, don't get it. Neither do the others. They were expecting a new world order involving power and might for Israel, a world that would be ruled from Jerusalem, a world in which maybe at least one of them could be Christ's first assistant. But Jesus has to corral them all and pull them in together because they were all missing the point. He tells them about the nature of his kingdom He tells them the true measuring stick for greatness in the kingdom of God. Verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave among all. The Lord Jesus was not interested in a new kind of religion, but in a new kind of human being, in a new kind of world. And then to put that all into the most practical terms possible, he points in our text at himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. As always, our Savior chooses his every word so very carefully. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a phrase that comes from the Old Testament, from Daniel 7. There, in a vision, the Son of Man is pictured as a glorious, heavenly figure. He was given everlasting glory and dominion. He's the one whom all nations will serve. Well, what we learn in our text is that the initial fulfilling of this prophecy comes in an unexpected and rather ironic way. The Son of Man doesn't come looking for an inheritance. He doesn't come looking to be served. Before any of that could happen, Christ reveals that he came to be a servant himself. How that underlines for us the remarkable humility and service of the one who by all rights should be honored and served. Even he came not to be served, but to serve. Yes, he came, Jesus says about himself. 
Well, that's a pretty big clue that the Son of Man existed before he was born. He came into the world. But there's more to this. And it's gospel news for us. That word came is a word that applies to the whole sentence. In other words, Christ came to earth to serve and to give up his life. It's not the case, as some say, that he came to earth to serve and discovered at some point that to serve really meant he had to die. That's nonsense. With such an idea, the gospel is gutted of its meaning and power. Christ came to earth not to serve with the possibility of death for us. No, the gospel news is that Christ came with every last intention to give his life from the very moment he received his life. No one took it from him. He gave it voluntarily. Christ took up the cross from the moment he breathed his first breath. From the beginning, beloved, he carried the certainty that his work centered in his death. He set his face towards this goal, and he made every move, every decision with this single task in full view. Hebrews 10 verse 5 says it so well. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body so that Christ could experience death as the true sacrifice for sin. And with the eyes of faith, we may see this. The gospel is not just that he died, but that he meant to die for us. This, hands down, is what makes the gospel so precious to us. You and I may know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Christ came to die, and he reached that goal by serving, by becoming poor, by becoming flesh and blood making himself a servant. Well, what does come out of our text in its setting is the call for us to follow Christ as he was. For if the one who created both the Milky Way and the Firefly became our servant, how can we possibly do anything less? Or... How dare we aspire to anything greater? Of course, there are limits to how we can follow Christ. There are many ways in which Christ's example is unreachable all on its own. For we are talking here, of course, not merely about a human being. We are talking about one who is also God himself. And so the self-denial, the self-sacrifice that Christ showed, these are the work of the Son of Man who came into the world. As God who came, he set an example. 
So his example really is and will remain something we are incapable of imitating. Even as believers made new by grace and anointed by the Holy Spirit. Still, there is a call to serve as Christ came to serve. The unlimited, unbounded service rendered by our master is a powerful incentive for us to make our self-denying service of others as unlimited, unbounded as we possibly can. Sure, we cannot begin our life of service by coming down from heaven But precisely because the Son of Man was willing to make this unique sacrifice, what limit would you or I dare to set upon the self-denial which God can accomplish through us? We cannot save sinners. But if our Master emptied himself of his riches to become poor, How can we possibly deny our brother or sister the Christian service we are called to render to them? Yes, can we ever say that any opportunity of coming alongside the sorrow and shame of another is too great a demand upon our own peace and safety? If Christ is our head, And if our head came to serve, there are no limits we may place upon the call to serve as he did. So as you and I look to be great, consider the Son of Man. He came to serve, and that becomes the clearest in that he came to ransom. That's our second point this morning. In our text, we come across something that Christ has previously not stated. In those previous predictions of his death, he simply explains that he must die. It's only now that he says, why? It's in the well-known words at the end of our text, of verse 45, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came to be a substitutionary Sacrifice. The word that stands out here to us is, of course, that word ransom. We don't use that word that often, other than in connection with a kidnapping, so its meaning might not be clear at first. The ransom, a ransom, is a price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. Someone would make a payment that's matched the value of or paid the debt of the slave or prisoner. This is what Christ came into the world to accomplish. He had to pay a ransom for slaves, and those slaves were us. But the ransom price could not be paid this time around in money because that would never cover the debt. For what put us in prison was not financial but spiritual bankruptcy. Our sin bound us, shackled us, and left us to fester and rot in the prison of our own rebellion. And so the only ransom price sufficient to pay our enormous debt was the giving of one's own very life. 
had to be his life, Christ's life, not ours. It had to be the life of the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. What we could not possibly pay for, as we also sang in Psalm 49, the precious life of the Son of Man did pay for. That was the only ransom price considered sufficient by God to set the prisoner free from God's justice and wrath. Christ came to ransom. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And you know, it was Christ's food and drink to do this. He carried out his ministry with this specific goal in his crosshairs. He came to obtain freedom for those for whom he laid down his life to serve. This unquestionably sets him apart from what the rulers of the Gentiles do. He says as much to his disciples in Mark 10 verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What does he mean with that? Look, the goal of the rulers of this world is to make their subjects serve them. These rulers more and more want to reduce their servants to a state of bondage. The Lord Jesus has an altogether different purpose. He came to give up his life as a ransom. Uh, brothers and sisters, I think what our text this morning is forcing us to do is think more deeply about the mystery of the cross. It's quite possible that both before and after Christ, people have given up their lives. But what Christ did is give his life as a ransom for many. That word for here does not mean for the sake of. Christ is not saying that he came to give his life as a ransom for the sake of many, for the benefit of many, though that's still true of his death. For here means instead of, in place of. And that means that he very intentionally put his life into the bondage of, of guilt and shame and suffering and death. That was the bondage in which your life and my life were held by God's justice and wrath. And so, here you have it. To become the ransom means to take the place of the other and to accept every last consequence. As you look to be great, consider the Son of Man. Consider what it means that the Son of God left holy communion with his Father 
in order to become at odds with his father, in combat with his father, and to experience then the wrath and the anger and the justice of God poured out on him so that he could only cry out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all there in the words he gave his life as a ransom for many. He stood in our place and he accepted every last consequence we would otherwise have had to. When we understand this, then we do understand more fully what service looks like, what his service was all about. Yes, in his cross, we finally see the unfolding mystery of his power to reach so deep within himself and serve his disciples. For at the cross, we see also him put to death every last possible ounce of desire to rule. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, many. He didn't give his life as a ransom for all, but for all whom God gave him. The sacrifice of one, the sacrifice of the Son of Man, to be more specific, bought the freedom not of one, but of many. His work was abounding in its fruitfulness, its efficacy. And that's probably because of whom this ransom was given to. Christ paid the ransom for us in our place by his death. That much is stated in our text. But a ransom price is always paid to someone. To whom is this ransom paid? Well, in the early church, there cropped up the very wrong-headed idea that when Christ was crucified, he made a payment to the devil. The thought was that since the devil held humanity in bondage, Christ paid him the ransom to set us free. That's complete rubbish. At the cross, Satan received one thing, his defeat. Christ bruised Satan's head. No, congregation, the ransom was paid to satisfy God. And there's something to this, and it is no coincidence that it comes out in a text like this. For our Savior, service to God took precedence over the service, even the salvation of men. As he hung there on that cross, as he did throughout his whole life, he hallowed God's name. The fact that he came, he came to give his life as a ransom for us was an act of love for God, no less than an act of love for us. To glorify God and serve him forever was the chief end of our Savior.
that humbles us as we consider the Son of Man. It also gives us focus. We are to render our lives unto God. And maybe we don't do it as a substitute for many, but maybe we concentrate our energies on those closest to us, those who are part of the many, those who are here. The truth is we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And love that serves the neighbor is in many ways love that substitutes ourselves in sacrifice. Let me explain. It's fairly easy to love someone who's got it all together. That kind of love doesn't really cost you much at all. And I suspect that each of us has at least a few people like that in our lives. And you can be thankful to the Lord for that. But if you've ever tried to love someone who has difficulties, someone who is in trouble, someone who is struggling physically, spiritually, emotionally, you likely have found or you will find that it's going to cost you. There's a certain kind of exchange that goes on. You exchange your love for their troubles. Well, someone once said something like this. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints. There are a lot of broken, hurting, struggling folk here. Consider the Son of Man who substituted himself for us. The best way to love another is through substitutionary sacrifice. And that's why it made such perfect sense that a God who is more loving than you or I could ever possibly be, that he came into the world to set it aright by way of substituting his life for ours. That had to happen. The debt had to be taken care of. Christ was so loving that he was willing to do it all himself. When you look at the cross and think about the cross on Good Friday, before you think of forgiveness, think of ransom. Ransom was the only way for your and my forgiveness. And praise the Lord that this all happened. The ransom has been paid. The blood has been spilled. Your sin has been paid for all of it. And so the guilt and the power of sin in your life are no more. Paul says in Titus 2 verse 14 that Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are zealous to serve others and to substitute for them, not because we need to, but because by God's grace and spirit now working in us, we want to. Whether or not we think they are worthy of our love doesn't factor into it.
certainly didn't come into Christ's equation. The gospel of God gives us a motivation for selfless living that increases and abounds in love for one another. So as you seek to find your place in the kingdom of Christ, consider him. Consider his servant leadership. Consider all he did for you. What are you going to do for him? Amen.